0: We press on. We press on to the goal. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Preachers say that before they preach, and now you know the psalm that it comes from, because if you were paying attention, it may have leapt out in your mind that this is the psalm, in fact, that those words come from. Well, what is it? What is it that enabled both Paul of Tarsus and Francis of Assisi to be so effective in this world? What is it that made them both so effective in this world? Clearly, it was humility. Humility. Both Paul and Francis died with Christ They died to a former way of life and both put on Christ in holy baptism, both Paul and Francis. They put on the humility of Christ, but they did something more. They kept it on. They kept the humility of Christ through daily decisions, and finally, Christ began to share his humility with them until... The humility of Christ, which is amazing, became the humility of Paul and the humility of Francis. Because if we know about the lives of Paul and Francis, we know that they were full of the humility of Christ. St. Augustine says, if you should ask me what are the ways of God, I would tell you that the first is humility. The second is humility, and indeed the third still humility. Not that there are no other precepts to give, but if humility does not precede all that we do, our efforts are fruitless. Well, this is the day of the feast of St. Francis. We're gathered here as Franciscans. And, uh, of course, I would have to give a challenging sermon about humility it's, it's humiliating to give a sermon about humility, uh, if you know what I mean, but uh, I think there are some wonderful things we can take from Paul's life and from the life of Francis. Paul, as you were listening to the epistle today, he had left aside and left behind a resume as the perfect Jew. He was top of the class, top of the heap, the, the, best, the best Jew there could possibly be. And in fact, he was circumcised into this law of Moses and the commonwealth of Israel. But he left all of that behind in order to be in and with Christ. He had totally changed his status as a Jew A Jew completed and fulfilled in Messiah Jesus, in fact, this Messiah would be humble and obedient even unto death in following the will and the way of God his Father for love of God the Father and his neighbor. And so Jesus was the sacrifice. Jesus was the fulfillment of everything that the law pointed towards as a goal. Jesus was everything as the Messiah for Paul. And Paul didn't want to have anything to do with all of the accolades that he would get from his former life. It was just that simple. The law cannot save Paul from sin and death. Jesus, the Messiah, can. And that's the entire point for Paul. So Paul said, I will just count all of that as loss in order to gain Christ, my Lord, my Savior, my God, who can save me from sin and death. And each of us, of course, have the very same proposition. Paul could have walked around with a great status, but he chose humility. He chose persecution. He chose hardship for the rest of his life to his dying day. He died for aligning himself with Jesus the Christ. Well, St. Francis did the same thing. He left his upbringing uh, in his uh, emerging upper class family that was just right on the outskirts of being considered a part of the nobility. His father had made so much money and he left all of the cultural norms that would have been normal for someone in his status to be in union with Christ in order to seek the way of Christ that was described by Jesus in the gospels. Most of the time we don't talk about Francis this way, but Francis was a literalist, (laughs) right? Francis took what Jesus said literally. He took it all the way, embracing humility, embracing lady poverty, not wanting to have any status, any possessions. It was a whole new way of life, but that humble way of Francis gave him a different type of power and influence in the world saint bonaventure who wrote one of the major biographies of francis said this the saint francis had a horror of pride which is the cause of all evil and of disobedience which was its worst offspring in fact he did not want to uh have any of his friars be elevated by a bishop to any place of authority because he worried that with that position of authority pride would seep up and would ruin the work that he was trying to do in and through his friars you know pride in all of us is like whack-a-mole do you know what whack-a-mole is does everyone know what that is oh Okay, well, uh, who knows what whack-a-mole is? Okay, good, I'm, I'm, I'm happy. Whack-a-mole is a carnival type of game. And uh, there's a little, uh, some sort of little creature that pops up and you whack that. But as soon as you whack that, another little creature pops up. So all you do is you whack all of these moles that come up because that's how pride works in us. As soon as we think we have one sort of thing settled another bit of pride comes in because we start to think, oh, well, I've gotten this settled over here. But pride works all the time against us. And so uh, it was something that Francis concentrated on, breaking the bondage of pride. One of the uh, books that I consulted for this, and in fact, if you were to only read one book on Francis, it would be John Michael Talbot's lessons from St. Francis, the lessons of St. Francis. This is what he says As Francis saw it, breaking the bondage of pride required nothing less than conversion, or more precisely, a lifelong series of conversions, some small and insignificant, some devastating and earth shaking. Through these daily conversions, God leads us by the hand and shows us again and again that we are not God. Only God is God. And that is certainly true. St. Francis would write, holy humility puts pride to shame. And all the inhabitants of this world and all that is in the world. St. Francis Had it right. Humility. Brings the entire world to its knees. Our God. Is a humble God. Both Paul and Francis fell in love. With the humble incarnate God Jesus. The God who came into this creation. And into this humanity in order to save it. It's the greatest act of humility in the universe, God is humility. And they got in touch with that and they realized that they could, by remaining in communion with God, take on and become the very humility of Christ himself. And that made all of the difference. Well, I want to touch on three ways that we can participate In humility, as we move through our life, as we continue the whack a mole offense against pride, because pride will rear its ugly head over and over again. The first way that we permit, uh, participate in humility, which is in some ways receiving a revelation of God and allowing that revelation to have its way with us. The first thing, the way that we participate with humility is in our very understanding and reception of God. We believe that God exists, but we also need to believe who we are. We are simply human beings. We are creatures made in God's image. We have a glorious future ahead of us because of God But left to ourselves, we are struggling. We are finite. We have a limited amount of resources. We have a limited amount of time in this world. We are only one of billions of people on this planet. You see, we're getting smaller and smaller, aren't we? But that's okay. That's okay. That's the humility that we need to have because God is great and we are very, very small. We are beloved children of God, but it's good to be humble before the living God and humble with one another. As we even talk about God, we are already talking about grace and gift. We didn't even ask to be born. But we are. We are born. We are living. Every breath is a gift from God. We are truly in a place of humility as God's children, as a human being in this world. Well, the second way that we participate in this glorious humility is is how we relate to others. Listen to what Paul said. It's revolutionary. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourself. Who talks like this? Where do these words come from? It's like they're from outer space. Can anyone recently remember when anything like this is on television or on a phone, or an app, or any type of media. We can't even remember anybody talking like this almost. Because this type of thought is from someplace else other than this world. It's from heaven. It's from God. Talk about the fact of doing something not for oneself, but for others... And considering that others are better than ourselves, that's revolutionary language nowadays. But that's Paul's language, that is Francis's language, that's God's language. In coming uh, up for this uh, sermon, I consulted a fantastic little book by the former Archbishop of Canterbury, Rowan Williams. And he uh, has a little book called Being Disciples. He has another one called Being Christian that's more more well-known. But Being Disciples. He has a couple of statements about this second participation in humility as we relate to one another, as we view ourselves along with others that I think are really worth looking at. The former archbishop says, For the Christian disciple, human dignity... And therefore, any notion of human rights depends upon the recognition that every person is related to God before they are related to anything or anyone else. God has defined who they are and who they can be by his own eternal purpose, which cannot be altered by any force or circumstance in this world. He does say people do sometimes resist God and are not able to fulfill all God wants for them. But what he's trying to get at is is that each person has a relationship with God. And it's a relationship that is a type of mystery that we can't enter into. In fact, he says that as we meet and greet other people, we need to meet and greet them as a great mystery. Because they have a connection with God that we don't have. We have our own connection with God, but each person has their own connection and life with God. So he says, whenever I face another human being, I face a mystery. He also says that being disciples means being called to see others from the perspective of an internal an unflinching, unalterable love. He's a very, uh, a very educated academician. <laughs> what, what the archbishop is saying is, is that when you look at someone else, you're looking at someone who is beloved of God. You're looking at someone who is absolutely loved by God, and you can't change that. So therefore, there's a sense of acceptance of them that they have value and worth and dignity all by themselves before they do or say anything, and that they are gods and gods alone in some ways. I find this very interesting, very important, because we live in a world right now where we have great disagreements and great division. And, oh, by the way, if you have not seen the social dilemma... The Social Dilemma, it's a Netflix documentary. You have to watch it. You absolutely have to watch The Social Dilemma, the Netflix documentary, because it is the people that help create all of the social media who are now having very, very strong questions about whether it's a good thing and how we even go forward with it. So uh, be sure and watch that, because they actually admitted that The great divisions that you see in our country coincide with social media. They actually say that. They say that's almost scientific proof that the two go together. Nevertheless, 9 o'clock didn't get that. You all got that. God bless you. Nevertheless, uh, so... We live in this great time of division right now, and we can have agreements, and we will have disagreements. We will have disagreements about all sorts of things, but each of us, as we look at the other, is looking at a child of God, someone who is beloved of God, and we have to start there. We have to ground ourselves in that humble place. We can still have strong convictions ourselves, and we should. But we have to understand that we are also just a human being who has their opinions. We're also someone who is beloved by God just like the other. And so we have to resist with all of our might demonizing each other based on politics or differences in religion and whatnot. Well, Thomas of Chilano wrote about Francis. He said, Francis was ready to spend himself. He wanted nothing more than to spend and be spent himself in order to fulfill the duty of being compassionate towards others. He says, that's why Francis and his friars gave to the poor, cared for the lepers, suffered persecution, sacrificed themselves for the benefit of others. It's a foundational characteristic of the Franciscan life and marked... The movement throughout all of the centuries. People who are in the Franciscan movement, they are people who serve others. And that's the third participation in humility. That we understand that we have blessings And we have energy and therefore we need to bless others if we have those things. If we're able to help those in need, we reach out and do those things. That's the third mark of humility that we would, in humble humble movement towards the other, seek to help and bless others who are in need. And so humility is hard. It's hard because it's following the way of Christ. The way of Christ is the way of sacrifice. The way of Christ is the way of laying down your life for others. That's why humility is so, so challenging for me. And I'm assuming that it's challenging for you. Well, before we close, let's just look at the gospel for one moment. The gospel was about a vineyard. God is the owner of the vineyard, right? The tenants were unfaithful and wicked. And of course, there's a disaster at the end because the landowner sends the son. Of course, that's Christ himself. But the idea of this world and the church being the vineyard that we, the tenants, don't own, but we are called to work in it, that's humble faithfulness. That's reminding ourselves that we're not the owners. We are simply the stewards. We are the workers. We're the tenants. God expects fruit from his vineyard, and we're the ones who are called to do it. So what are we doing with the gifts and the talents, the creativity, the resources that we have? And I will just say that as we move into this transitional time, I know many people aren't ready uh, for the amount of work that we were doing in terms of service and outreach before, but I anxiously await the time that we can get back to some of those things. We, as the parish of St. Francis, have continued to send funds to all of these organizations, but we are not able right now to do a lot of the face-to-face work that we were. But I'm looking forward to the day when we can do that. And we may have to get over some of our fears to do that. I'm not asking anybody to to do something that would just be foolhardy. But we do have to ease back in to this humility of service. And there is some vulnerability in that. And that may be uh, in our future. Well, let's end. Uh, We're called to put on Christ. To put on the humility of Christ. We received it at baptism. But we have a sense of taking that humility off. That garment of humility. We have to keep it on. And we have to daily allow the humility of Christ. To seep inside of us. To become uh, our own humility. Where we can participate. In knowing and loving a humble God. Who offered himself for us for knowing ourselves to be simply a human being in this world, a beloved child of God and every other person we meet. We see a great mystery and someone who is beloved of God. And then thirdly, service. We have to pick back up our service when we can. We have to continue to reach out and to bless others and to be the very love of God for them. May we continue this journey of seeking the humility of Christ and following the examples of Paul and Francis. Amen.